Welcome to another episode of The Root of All Business. This is your host, Chaz Bear, and today's guest is Eli Hunkins. Eli is a sought-after speaker, consultant, trainer, coach, and now an author of The Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. Over his 20-year career, he has led over 2,000 groups in 25 countries. His clients include uh, the likes of Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, IBM, General Motors, and, and Microsoft, just to name a few. Um, he's designed uh, seminars and facilitated uh, workshops on topics like team building, conflict management, communication, peak performance, innovation, change. Uh, he also serves uh, on the faculty of Duke Corporate Education and has published over 400 articles on the leadership. In this episode, we are going to talk about his three secrets to building strong leaders. Um, what's his take on hiring the right people and what kind of qualities to look for? And also what kind of conversations you should be having uh, with your teams and building the right kind of culture. So let's welcome Eli. Welcome to another episode of The Root of All Business. This is your host, Jazz Bear. And today's guest is Eli Hunkins. Um, he's the author of Cracking the Leadership Code, The Three Secrets of Building Strong Leaders. He's a speaker, consultant, trainer, coach, has over 23 years of uh, experience in working with uh, groups of over 2,025 countries. Some of his clients include Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, just to name a few. Um, and he's also serves as the faculty of uh, Duke Corporation Education uh, in Oxford and has published over 400 articles. Welcome to the show, Eli. Thanks so much, Jasmine. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Your book is coming out, Cracking the Leadership Code. Very interesting. What made you write the book? Sure. Well, I guess for me, I have been inspired since I was a little kid to wonder why do people do what they do? And I've been fascinated by people and what makes us tick. Always was. So, you know, when I was an undergrad in college, I studied psychology. I also studied theater, you know, which is like all about human motivation and drama and how things play out. And I actually went on and got a graduate degree at an acting school, but then quickly moved into the world of education. I was teaching kids leadership skills in junior high schools and high schools in New York City. And then from there, transitioned into working with adults in corporations and organizations. And what I kept finding with the more and more groups that I'd work with, helping them to develop their leadership, I found there were these patterns of behavior, both patterns of what people did well, as well as what people did poorly. And, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. And so I started taking notes and I'd notice things, I'd take notes, and then the notes became stories. And then I started writing the stories down. So the stories became blog posts. And ultimately, the blog posts became chapters and the chapters became parts and the parts became this book, Cracking Leadership Code. And the goal of the book is for it to be a guide. It's really 23 years of experience of really practical, specific how-to things that people can take and start to apply immediately. So what inspired me is this desire to take everything I've learned from all the leaders I've worked with and pass it on to the next generation of aspiring leaders, as it were. Sure. In your kind of experience, you know, um, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of books on leadership and, you know, there's always talk about leadership. What, what is the three secrets that, that you kind of um, can kind of share that really can help people uh, build strong leaders, companies yeah. that can build strong leaders? Sure. Yeah. So the three secrets, and it's interesting that we call them secrets because you'll hear them and you'll go, that doesn't sound so secret. <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. So the three secrets of building strong leaders are connection, communication, and collaboration. 
And like I said, like, oh, that sounds like common sense. And on a certain level, it is. But if you look at the, the global feedback on what people think about leaders, last I saw only 23% of people believe leaders lead well. So look, if it's so simple to lead, we should have a lot better leaders than just 23%. Yeah. So to me, the challenge is not so much understanding the theory, connection, communication, collaboration. It's knowing what are the things that are going to trip you up? What are the things that are going to get in your way as a leader? So the book is filled with these examples and stories of what not to do or what to look out for because it's going to happen. You know, so many of us are struggling with leadership because frankly, a lot of us are using a recipe that was given to us, you know, by two, three, four, five generations ago. And while the recipe has stayed the same, the nature of work and the nature of trying to lead in organizations in 2020 and beyond has radically changed. What would you say? I mean, you know, we've all been in positions and situations where, you know, you have seen people within the organization being uh, promoted based on their skill set, based on, you know, the work they can produce, but not so much how well they can lead. And they never, once they are in that position, they never get kind of developed and trained. And they bring all of that kind of baggage, if you like, of, you know, this is how. I saw my manager or my, my, my lead above me, and that's what I'm going to do. And, and on the other hand, you know, someone who's building a fast-growing company and, and you know, is hiring people, again, they, they base their decision of getting people in the company on the basis of skills and not, not kind of on, on the, their qualities of, of leadership. How do you kind of, what are some kind of assumptions people make uh, when kind of thinking about leadership, which kind of gets them in trouble? Yeah. So there's a number of assumptions that get in the way. So first of all, to bring up your point about, you know, get people who get promoted because they have certain skills or are brought in, like you have the skills to do this job. Let's say you're, you're a good software engineer. We'll make you the, the lead software engineer. You can lead the entire team software engineers, for example. Well, recognizing what makes you a good individual contributor is a completely different skill set from being a good leader of people. And what's interesting is what we tend to do in life, all of us do this, is we tend to rely on our strengths. And so one assumption is thinking, oh, well, I'm good at this. I'll just do more of this. So for example, most good individual contributors are very focused on details and achieving and getting results because if they didn't, they wouldn't be the achievers that they are. However, what that can lead to when you move from an individual contributor role into a leadership role is suddenly you try to do that for everyone else and that can quickly morph into becoming a micromanager where you're not just concerned about the results. Now you're concerned that people do things the exact same way you do them. And look, no one likes to be micromanaged. Yet it's really easy for me if I'm so used to thinking this is how things are and I'm really driven to achieve that way. Well, then suddenly when I see somebody doing something different, it's almost like I can't help myself. Like, no, you really should do it this way. Do it this way. And then suddenly I'm breathing down people's necks. And the fact is people don't want micromanagers. People don't want a fixer, right? They want a leader and they don't want someone who's going to treat them like a child and tell them exactly what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And you need to be here then and do this now. People want leaders who will accept them and listen to their ideas and have a dialogue and actually serve more as a facilitator and coach. So I, I'm a big believer that this whole idea of connection, communication, collaboration is about this next generation of, I'll call it facilitative leadership. And the word facilitate, and you're a facilitator, it comes from the French, you know, facile, to make things easier. I mean, the fact is we're working and living in such complex times and it's the role of the leader to help make things easier so people can actually focus on the work 
that has to get done as opposed to getting caught up in all the complexity of everything around them. So it's offering, uh, what you're trying to point out is that it's offering that freedom, giving people that freedom to do what you like as long as it produces that end result. It's how they do it, it's up to them. Exactly. So there's a little paradox there because yes, there's a freedom in terms of the how, but there should be some clarity around the what, right? So we're not suggesting that, oh, look, you're free to do what you want and I'll check in with you in a month or two months. Yeah. No, that's not what we're talking about, right? It's this embracing the paradox of both and. That is, how can you give people a very clear structure in terms of this is the results we're going for. Let me explain the big picture of how your results fit into the bigger picture mission of the organization, how that's serving our customers and society at large. So people know why they're doing what they're doing and they have a purpose. So now I've established this framework and you can call it a sandbox, if you will, right? The, the, the perimeter of the sandbox based on your track record, your expectations, the purpose, the goal. We have the sandbox, but then within the sandbox, you should be free to play in that sandbox and different people should have different sandboxes depending on their skill set and what they do. And leaders need to be able to understand what those parameters are, which is why leadership is much more challenging than it looks on the surface. It's a very interesting point you touched on. Um, you know, we have, I've, I've seen situations where when a leader is it's too, um, if I may use the word frank, if you like, or quite open, yeah. employees tend to take more advantage of that. And whereas if a leader is a bit strong, employees think he's a micromanager, he's you know, too strong of a leader, he doesn't understand us. How do you kind of find the right, right balance of, you know, you giving them that freedom, that sense of empowerment, if you like, and at the same yeah. time, having that, that line of respect and, you know, a line of, you know, responsibility on, on the employee kind of um, on that level? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm going to answer it by going off the board a little bit. So how do you find the balance? I don't think you do try to balance it because balance assumes that we're binary, that we have to do a little of this and a little of that. When in fact, I think what the best leaders do is they do a lot of both. And what I mean by that is that one of the key things that leaders need to do is they have to be very explicit with their expectations, right? Because people are good at many things, but reading minds is not one of them. And so recognizing, so if I expect you, Jasbir, to do a certain thing, I have to spell that out and not just tell you, but actually have a dialogue and have you actually agree to it and come in some ways almost come up to it on your own. And then you agree with me that you know, this is what I'm going to do. Here's I can lay out. Here's the project. Maybe we, if we want to, we can lay out some milestones and we can look at all that. So it's really important that I create that clarity because without that level of clarity and without having those expectations explicitly communicated, how can I if, you're, if I'm the leader, how can I try to hold someone else accountable? Because the fact is, I don't believe the leader's job is to hold somebody else accountable in the way like, look, it's my job. What I really believe what we're doing as leaders is we are co-creating agreed upon expectations with somebody up front, right? They're adults, we're adults. We need to co-create agreed upon expectations. And then what I can do along the way down the project timelines is I can remind you of those expectations if I need to. So when we check in, how are we doing? And I can try to support you along the way. Uh, I can ask you questions. I can offer support. But it's not my role to hold you accountable because, look, I'm not your parent, right? I'm your leader. And when we default into this parent-child dynamic, 
what it does, it's very disempowering on both sides. So to go back to your first question, thinking about expectations is really important. And the other side is, you know, the level of support and care. The fact is, some people think, well, gosh, you know, if I'm too friendly with people or I show them I care too much, they're not going to respect me. There's no data to back that up, right? That's this belief that leaders need to lead through fear. All the data suggests that when people feel valued and cared for, they actually perform a lot better. And, you know, I don't want to go into all the research with you now, but I've got about 30 pages of footnotes in the book to kind of go into some of these things, like all the research about how much better. And, and there's a, this neuroscience makes sense because the fact is when people feel psychologically safe, what it does is it relaxes their nervous system. So they're not focused on, is this okay? Am I going to have a job? What does this mean? What should I do? Right? They're not in that questioning, doubting mode. I mean, it's so easy when you're in a panic situation to kind of get sucked into the fear and all of that unsafe behavior. And when you're feeling unsafe, you don't have the cognitive bandwidth to be able to go into your prefrontal cortex and make logical, rational, good decisions. And so you literally can't make good decisions when you're operating for a fear-based, hard-edged boss who's just hard and doesn't give you support. So for those that are considering, you know, what should my leadership strategy be, you know, actually caring and supporting people is a great foundation to build on. In fact, in, in the book, I talk about the fact that the, the foundation to leadership is connection because ultimately leadership is built on a relationship between the leader and the person who chooses to follow. And the foundation of the relationship is based on empathy, human to human contact, showing that you understand people and that you care how they feel. And I'm sure you've heard the expression, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I mean, I know it sounds like a bit of a, you know, a platitude, but there's the science can actually back that up today. And that's what's exciting about these times that we live in and that there's so many things that we can learn. And what we are finding is that, you know, business isn't keeping up with what science knows. Science knows a lot more than what business is actually doing. And so, we can start to embrace a lot of these practices on a daily basis and we'll get better. A lot of, uh, you know, what you talked about, uh, we spoke about in, in our pre-chat as well. Uh, you talked about emotional intelligence being a key ingredient to, you know, for uh, that gives uh, aspiring leaders a competitive advantage. First of all, in, in, in your kind of own words, what, what is emotional intelligence? Because I, there's a lot of been written about it. There's a lot of been said about it. Is it something that you should be aware of? Is it more self-awareness or is it more uh, how you should uh, pay attention to other people's emotion? So what, what is emotional intelligence to you, first of all? Yes and yes. <laughs> the answer to that. Yeah. So what is emotional intelligence? Ultimately, it's both. I mean, it's all about awareness. If we think emotion intelligence, I like to say people who are emotionally intelligent, they have a knack for people, right? They have this sixth sense of just how to deal with people. And the two main components are self-awareness. So first of all, am I aware of how am I showing up? That is, how am I being perceived, right? Because we all have this gap between what we intend and how we're perceived. And in general, the gap is, I think I'm awesome, right? Other people may not think that way, but of course, like, and because we judge ourselves based on our intentions. So the first piece of self-awareness is to start to close the gap between what do I intend and how is that showing up? Understanding all of that. Now, the next piece of emotional intelligence is relationship awareness. Do I understand the impact that I'm having on people? And do I understand the, the cues they're giving back to me 
that go, oh, are they tracking? Are they happy to be here? Are they scared? Am I, I have to start picking this up. Are they confused? And so to me, the emotional intelligence lives in the space between self and other. And having the awareness of that is critical. In fact, a lot of the studies, and you know, obviously, uh, if you're familiar with the term emotional intelligence, the person who publicized this is, a, is Daniel Goleman. He's got a book, his original book is called Emotional Intelligence. Well, he wrote an article called What Makes a Leader for Harvard Business Review a number of years ago. And he did a lot of research and found that emotional intelligence is the number one driver for leadership success. So if you're thinking about what can I do to be a successful leader, we'll start by becoming more self-aware. And the best way to do that, for my take, is to start asking people that you know and will give you the honest truth, asking them for feedback about how you're really doing. Ask for the good, ask for the bad, ask for the ugly, ask for what could I be doing that would make things even better. And then, of course, the key thing is to listen to that, to absorb and internalize that, and then turn around and start to act on the feedback that's given. Because otherwise, you'll, you'll stay stuck. Would you, would you suggest a, a leader does that, regardless of what the size of your team, um, or actually it does matter the size of your team? Let's say you run a team of five or 10, it might be a bit easier to, or should you do a company-wide? How would you do a, a kind of, a, if you like, a 360 feedback of, you know, these were our goals, this is, what do you think, how, what can I do better? How would you go about doing that? Yeah, I would do that. Actually, the way I find it most useful is to keep it pretty low tech. Right. Is, you know, I mean, because you can do it. Yeah, certainly, there's great value to 360 instruments. And there's some great 360 leadership practices, uh, some assessments that you can go out and get. You know, one that I'm quite familiar with is the, the Leadership Challenge Leadership Practices Inventory. It's a 20-question inventory that's very easy to use. It's all behavioral-based. But frankly, the challenge, if you try to do it as a formal 360, a lot of people try to game assessments, right? Particularly in organizations like, oh gosh, you know, if I answer this way, how will I be seen? They're concerned. Right. The fact is what you really need to do is find some people you trust. And I say, keep it low tech. You know, you can sit down if you're with a team and I would actually do this one-on-one so people feel safer because just saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking. So I'm with you, Jasbir, here. And if I'm comfortable, I can put a piece of paper with a line down the middle and I can capture and take notes. Can you tell me what do you think the things I'm doing that I do well? right? And capture those. And the key with the feedback and how I receive it is as you're giving me the feedback is the only response I have is thank you. Thank you. I just capture it. I don't debate. I don't go, well, you know, I didn't mean for that to be that way. What I really meant, like this is not a time for justification. Yeah. It's a time to take the feedback in. So capture what worked well. And then, hey, Jasmine, what else, what do you think I could be doing even better? And by framing it in the future as even better, I suddenly am taking the load off of saying, you know, negative feedback or it's not constructive, you know, people hear critical feedback or no, this is all, the whole point of feedback is to help us improve. So if I can have just an honest conversation, a candid conversation, and then for me to go, go away with my notes that you've given me and to internalize it and think, all right, so what's the one thing I'm going to do tomorrow to start to act on this? Does that make sense? It does, yeah, absolutely. And um, built on that, so that's, that's, if you like, is one kind of piece of it. What, what else can you yeah. do to kind of have that connection, have that kind of commitment and loyalty from your employees um, as a leader and, and kind of build that following? Yeah, so, you know, we talked about connection a, a bit, right? So building up empathy. So taking some time and listening to people with purpose is probably the number one thing that you can do to build a stronger relationship that is based on connection. 
we think about it, what is the most valuable asset that any of us have? It's our presence, right? It's our attention. I mean, there's really interesting studies that say that, you know, if somebody can help you out and they can give you money, right? To help you, like, I need this. Can you give me some money? Or would they be willing to give you some of their time to help? You know, which one do you think people appreciate more? Their, their money or time? If someone's willing to help you out. Sorry, that's a question for like me. A, uh, yeah, that's a question for time, you. Yeah, like, time, do you definitely. Think time. Yeah, definitely time, right? So the fact is, because time is a limited fixed resource, like we can't get more of it. We all get 24 hours a day. So when I'm with other people, yeah. if I'm totally present to you, Jasbir, and, and I want to listen to what you have to say, and I focus, you now I put my phone down away, I'm just right here, right now, I'm here with you, and I just focus on that. I look to draw you out. I ask you questions. Tell me more about that. Explain that some more. Describe what you mean. That is the fast track to connection because the fact is we all want to be seen. We want to be recognized. We want to be valued. We want to be understood. And when someone takes the time to do that, it's the biggest gift that we can give somebody else, frankly. And that's true across cultures all around the world. So if you're looking to build your loyalty and credibility, what the message that you send when you take that time is that I care about you, that you're valuable, that you are worth my time, right? And once we feel that someone is worth it, we're so much more willing to work harder, right? I know there are people that I'm willing to bend over backwards. If they called me at two in the morning and they said, hey, could you do this? I wouldn't think twice because they've put those, we'll call it, I think Stephen Covey might've popularized the phrase. They've put the deposits in the emotional bank account, right? And so if we as leaders and as people put these deposits in other people's emotional bank accounts, we have credit to draw on, right? So you've got that whole aspect. So listening with purpose is a really big thing. And then the other side of it, and what, the, well, what I'll say is listening with purpose builds the sense of empathy and connection. And when we have that, people feel like they can be genuine and vulnerable and honest and authentic with us, right? Because no one wants to feel like they're wearing a mask. And unfortunately, I think at last studies I saw, about 61% of people feel like they have to cover their identities, that's mask themselves wow. in some way when they go to work. 61%. That was a study by Deloitte last year. And so what's amazing is, and if you know what it's like to have to wear a mask, you can't feel connected. You feel like you're on guard. You just are holding something back. And so by showing and modeling vulnerability and honesty, people can show up and, and bring their whole selves to work, right? We've heard that phrase, bring your whole self to work. Well, what does it mean? It means being able to be authentic and vulnerable and honest. And guess what? When you're in that space, you're much more able to draw on your best ideas. And so then you start to have a culture and a climate that supports innovation, right? Where we don't, we don't sit back and politicize what's going on. So you've got all that going on. And then the other thing that you can do as well is to, this is to build loyalty. The thing you can do is work to build your credibility, right? So this is not vulnerability-based trust. Credibility is all about predicting trust. That is like, if I know that you have high credibility, I basically know I can count on you to show up and do stuff. And I talk about a number of different things in the book, but really simple thing that anyone can do. In fact, I think it is the biggest thing that anyone can do to grow their credibility. Super simple. Show up on time. Because if you think about it, what is the easiest thing for us to measure? Presence or absence? If you're there on time, your behavior has sent the message that I showed up, I did what I said I'm going to do, I'm here, I'm ready to go. When I'm absent, when I'm late, what does the message send? You're not that important to me. Frankly, 
something else is more important, I don't care all that much. Now, of course, I know that sounds a little harsh and brutal, but that's what the behavior is saying. I'm not asking you what you intend, and I'm not asking you what your story is. Oh, there was this traffic going on, you don't understand. I mean, yeah, stuff happens every so often, but you should focus on what kind of person do I want to be? And it's interesting. Obviously, I learned this from a mentor. And so I started, and I was not someone who showed up on time consistently. Or if I did, I was running late. I was always like, oh, I've got to get there on time, right? And so then I got into this practice of showing up on time. And for a while, I used to be really ticked off when I would work to show up on time and other people weren't, they were late. And I was like, wait, I worked so hard to be on time. Why aren't they on time? And what I realized was I wasn't showing up on time for them. I was showing up on time for me because this is the type of person that I want to be. I want to be the person who says what they do and do what they say, right? That's important to me. In fact, that's my reputation. That's the way I want people to think of me. And, you know, particularly for me, like I work, I teach people about leadership. And I think more than anything I say, you know, it's so much easier to talk about and teach this stuff than it is to do it. So for me, looking to model something as simple as showing up on time says a lot. So in terms of things that you can do to build loyalty, work on building your vulnerability, right? And, your, and, and all of the empath- empathic connections, and then work on building your credibility through your behavior and how people can predict that you're someone who can be trusted. All of this kind of, if you like, the research, the methods that, you know, I want to know your opinion on this. Is it a lot easier? Because, because obviously your clients have been some of the big corporations. Do you find that it's a lot easier that the new generation companies, the likes of Google's and the likes of Facebook's, it's a lot easier for them to adapt this kind of methodology and, and, and mindset, if you like, compared to the old school where they think, you know what, we are successful, we are rich. If you can't do the job, you'll get someone else to do it. And they kind of are very resistant to change and kind of new. What's your kind of opinion on that? Sure. Yeah. I don't think it so much has to do with the organization at large. I think it frankly has to do with the leader of a team. Because look, if you've worked in an organization and had more than one boss in the course of your tenure while you're working at that organization, you know that depending on who you're working for, it's like you're working for two different companies or even like living on two different planets. I mean, the immediate supervisor or the leader sets the tone. In fact, Gallup says that the immediate leader is responsible for 70% of the variance in terms of workplace culture. So that's a huge number. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's how things are done around here. Well, yes, that's true. And I have a choice with my team. Do I want to go with the tide or go against the tide? Now, look, here's an example. Like, well, let's go back to our lateness example. If your company culture is such that every meeting starts 10 minutes after the hour, when it says, you know, people stop showing up on time because they know, hey, you know, what 10 o'clock really means 10 past 10. And so people don't do that. Now, you can just go along with it and be unconscious, or you can say to the team that you work with, hey, what my meetings are is we start on time. And in fact, I've had leaders who lock the door. People can't get in or you call it, you can't call in three minutes after because they really want to set that boundary and that people learn quickly. So I'd say, Jasbir, it's less about the company than it is about what do you choose to do in your own sphere of influence. It's really easy to want to point fingers at other people. And certainly other people do have an influence, but there's more that we can do than we think. And it starts with us. What are some of the ways, uh, you know, uh, leaders can 
build an energized work culture and environment, you know, um, you know, it may not be company-wide, it may be that person and their team. What can that person, that leader do to kind of implement that energized environment? Yeah. So energy is a key ingredient to creating an inspired, motivated workforce. And the fact is, you know, what can I do as a leader? There's a number of things you can just want to talk about a few. One is, first of all, lead by example, right? So if you want your team to be energized, how are you showing up? You know, and, and are you doing the thing so that when you show up on a given day, people look at you as you're a role model? Because the fact is, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It's the only thing that actually influences. And that, that comes from Albert Schweitzer, by the way, said that. I love that quote. Yeah, the fact is, that is the main driver of influence is, is our role modeling. So, so for example, are you getting enough sleep? You know, what kind of food are you putting into your body? Do you exercise? We were talking about this before, you know. It's like realizing as the leader, I am the instrument. My body, my voice, my energy is the instrument. So what am I doing to take care of that instrument? And so I can play it to its full effect, right? So that's a simple thing that you can do is just realize how am I showing up in terms of that? A couple other things in terms of energy. Uh, one is to consider how long do you push on with people? A lot of people still operate from this mechanical mindset of more, more, like if I just got like, let's just push on. So for example, really simply, when's the last time, you may have had this experience, have you sat through a two or three hour conference call or meeting that didn't take a break? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And did you notice that about 90 minutes in that you, your energy started to flag and you're like going, oh my gosh, are we going to take a break? And then you started to get distracted. Yeah. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, of course. I mean, the fact is, and almost everyone when I ask this question, they raise their hand like, oh my gosh, shoot me now. This is horrible. It is horrible. Because biologically, we are not wired to focus in perpetuity. We need breaks, right? And the studies would show that if you're not taking a break every 90 minutes, you have a real drop off in people's attention, their emotional energy, their mental focus, your, their ability to collaborate. So why would you keep pushing on? So something to consider, this is a simple tool you can use is, I call it use the 90 minute rule. Every 90 minutes, plan a break even if you think you don't need one, because someone does. So, and that break, by the way, should be getting up, moving around, doing something that is going to boost your level of physical and mental energy. That means, oh, it's a break. I mean, this is classic. You see this in organizations, I see it all the time. Okay, you know, I lead seminars and we go about 75 or so minutes and we, we're gonna take a 15 minute break. Guess what everybody does? They pull out their phones and they check their emails. Right? And, they're, <laughs> and they're basically just trying to do other work during what's supposed to be yeah a recovery and restorative time. That's not a break. That's just other work. And then we get done with the break and they come back and they're fried, right? So recognizing, use the 90 minute rule and take a break. So that's just a couple of things, you know, modeling it yourself, taking a break. You know, those are some simple things that people can do to increase their energy. I think in the book, I write about nine different techniques. I just shared two of them with you right now. Sure. We touched on, on especially with meetings, and, and that's so true with, uh, you know, with, with, with companies and a majority of the leaders in trying to push everything through. If it's earlier in the morning, I personally find, and I've seen people, you know, if it's in the morning, first of all, most people get in, but some there's occasional few people that are always late. But yeah. morning meetings, for me personally, I feel a lot better. I have more energy. I can perhaps go through more than 90 minutes. It's not an issue. What can you do to kind of simplify things and simplify meetings and keep them to the point instead of talking about everything in the world? And, and I see the first thing that comes in, I'm, I, I now eat very healthy, donuts come in early in the morning and the sugar crash hits you after 15 minutes. Yeah, oh, of course. Forget 19 minutes, you don't even last half an hour. 
Yeah, what, exactly. What can you do to kind of simplify meetings and be more focused and get the most out of them? Yeah. So one of the things, you know, meetings, you know, gosh, I think that about last I saw about 64% of people say that meetings are by far the biggest waste of time in, in, in the workplace. And you think so many people I've met, and this may be a common refrain for you too. So many people say, gosh, you know, I just can't wait until it's six o'clock at night so I can stop going to meetings and I can actually get some actual work done because I just feel like these meetings are such a waste of time. Um, so here are a few things that you can do to simplify meetings. Number one, I call it an agenda or no meeting. Like basically how many people have a meeting because it's 10 a.m. and we have a meeting every Tuesday at 10 a.m. It's our usual status update. Like why do we need to really do this? Is this, do we need a meeting to do that? So that's an example, but having a clear agenda. And by the way, if you're not the leader of the meeting and you're scheduled to show up to a meeting tomorrow at 10 a.m. and you haven't gotten an advanced agenda, I think it's completely within your eyes to say, hey, Jesper, I'm just checking in. I know we have this meeting tomorrow that you're leading. Uh, what's, the, what's the agenda? And if you don't have an agenda for me, I'm not showing up, okay? I'm just not showing up. So that just sort of like raises the stakes. And then getting really clear on what is, if we do have an agenda, mapping out what is the purpose of our meeting? So if we're just here to share information, hold on a second. We got something called email. Can't we just do it that way? Like what's the purpose of us sharing information? Are we trying to share information so that we're going to ultimately make a decision? Are we looking to have some kind of robust dialogue to debate an issue? These are all things that we have to consider. Are we looking to make that decision? Are we looking to take action? Are we looking to mitigate some kind of risk? Being really clear on what is the purpose of the agenda. And, and there's different types of meetings that people can have. So have an agenda, being really clear on that. And then also recognizing Let's assign some roles. Let's have a facilitator. And just because I'm the leader doesn't mean that I should actually facilitate. In fact, oftentimes I shouldn't because I'm, I've got too much skin in the game. I have too much of a vested interest in the outcome. And it's really hard to focus on both the task and the content as well as the process. So do we have a facilitator? So that facilitator can make sure that we're on, on our time agenda. Are we allocating a certain amount of time. And then we know that after 10 minutes, we're going to move on to the next topic or whatever that is. You know, those are some things that we can do to simplify. The other key ingredient to making meetings both simpler and effective is we need to budget time toward the end of the meeting where we wrap up, you know, 15 minutes before the end, end of the meeting, we finish up the discussion and we need time to both recap what we've said, as well as make sure that we have clarified what are the actions that are coming out of here? Because I'm sure you've experienced, so many of us do. We go to these meetings, we throw out a bunch of ideas, meeting time is over. Okay, everybody, great. Everyone knows what they're doing, right? And everyone just walks away. And then we end up having these meetings after the meeting in the hallway. Well, Jazz, what did you say we're doing? Because I'm not quite clear, right? So we want to get, so we want to make sure that everyone has confirmed on that. So a big part of meetings and I talk about this around effective communication. The whole point of communicating is to create shared understanding because shared understanding becomes the platform for all future action. So if we have clarity on our decisions, then we know that we're walking and we're aligned as we're leaving the room or the virtual room. And if we're not aligned, if we don't have the understanding, that means we're 10 people going in 10 different directions. And what we'll end up doing is having to do a lot of rework or duplication of effort or just missteps that we're going to have to catch at some point later on. So meetings are an opportunity to come together, to align, to confirm understanding. And leaders need to be vigilant about making sure 
that they understand the purpose and that everyone else understands the purpose and that we're all working towards that goal. Sure. I wanted, I wanted to know your opinion on this. Uh, recently, when I say recently, I think it's been, in about, been about a year or so, Sweden has moved to a six-hour work week, a six-hour work day. Yeah. Um, that's all trying to get out. So I was reading that study and, and um, you know, why, why they did that. And obviously, like, like we talked about earlier on, that, you know, we have an attention span of maybe uh, 90 minutes and perhaps we need to take a break and then go back into it. Yeah. What's yeah. your kind of thoughts on it? Because nowadays we, we are not simply in that industrial age where you're saying, right, you're working eight hours straight, you're producing this at the end of the day. Now we are, we are more thinking about how do we get as leaders, how do we get the best of our people? How do we make sure they're well looked after, their well-being, you know, they're producing the best quality of work. And all of that taking into account, and there is a little bit of resistance in saying, you know, in a 24-hour day, six-hour workday, I don't feel I'm getting my money's worth as, as an employer, especially, you know, the, the corporates. What's your yeah. kind of view on it uh, with, with all that encompass? Sure. Yeah. So you're seeing in Sweden the idea of a six-hour workday. You're also seeing some places going to a four-day work week. Yes. Yeah. What I think I love it because I think what we're moving away from is work that is focused on activity and work that is focused on delivering value and delivering results. And, you know, you talk about this, am I not getting my value, you know, as the, the fear-based employers, like I'm being taken advantage of. So this very much harkens back to the industrial age mentality. And I talk about this in the book and the whole first section is called context. We talk about your inherited leadership legacy. And there's a great example uh, there's a man named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is considered the father of scientific management. He was the first leader who tried to figure out how do you lead people in a large scale workforce? And for there at the time, it was the factory. And one of the things that drove Winslow Taylor was he had, and they called it at the time, the phrase is called soldiering. And what soldiering, it's not a word that we use much anymore. What soldiering means, it's basically, you think that employees are soldiering, it's that they are working as slow as possible right? Because they were on the assembly line, right? So the idea of soldiering is people are working as slowly as possible because they're going to get paid the same amount per hour, no matter how fast or how slow, that they're going to keep working as slowly to basically milk this out to take advantage of their employer. And he was so concerned with this. This was, he thought it was this morally reprehensible thing and that every single employee was out to try to get them. Just notice, by the way, just the fear mentality that that comes from, like, where does that come from, right? And so this idea that, you know, people have to put in an eight hour day and eight out, put in, like, what's the output though? Like they have to put it in, like people aren't working on an assembly line, you know? So it's understanding what are the results that you need people to deliver. And look, if someone can deliver the result in a half an hour and they take the rest of the day and go to the gym, like I shouldn't care, right? Because I'm not about micromanaging people's lives. What I'm trying to understand is what are the results that I'm trying to create? Now, that does take some work. It's way easier to measure, again, time, activity. And even that, you see, gets gamed. I have you know, a, lot of cons- a lot of clients who work in the consulting world and in, in other, other fields too, but they talk about how people would play these games where they would leave the office, but they would leave their jacket on the back of their chair to like make it seem like they had just stepped away from their desk for a while. And they would leave for like three hours from like 4 p.m. till 7 p.m. And then they'd come back and work from seven until nine at night. You know, it's again, trying to make it seem like they're putting in these long hours because it was all about the optics. So realizing, look, every system can be gamed, you know, once people start to figure it out. So to me, 
focus on results, focus on results and treat people like humans because that's what we want. And if you don't treat people with that level of humanity and respect, I mean, we live in an age, I mean, today in 2020, the workforce, 59% of our workforce is Gen Y and Gen Z. And, you know, millennials and Gen Z kind of, they know where the grass is greener, you know, between LinkedIn and monster.com and Glassdoor, you know, people are keeping up. I, I read something that 50% of people are ready to kind of look, are, are actively looking for a new job. So if I'm not getting treated in a way that, why would I ever leave this place? It's awesome. There's a pretty good chance that I'm looking around to see where the grass is greener. And certainly in this day and age, you know, we, we, we're, you know, back in the Industrial Revolution, if people just shut up and did what they were told and kept their nose clean and just kept their head down and kept working, they pretty much had a job for life and they probably had a pension too. That world has gone away. So what's the value proposition that you as an employer offering me to stay? If you don't have something compelling, you don't give me work with purpose. If you're not giving me the opportunity to continue to learn and grow and develop, if I don't work with a leader who's authentic and transparent, I'm going to go look for a job somewhere else because I know from looking on LinkedIn and Glassdoor that with my skill set, I can get a job and probably 15, 20% more money somewhere else. Guess what? I'm going to leave. So the ball is in the court of leaders now because of the world that we live in. We have to raise our game. No, we can't just say, what's your motivation? Your paycheck's your motivation. We can't do that. We can't live that way anymore. It's, that's lazy leadership. And leaders are being challenged to lead at a whole new level, which is, which is, what, is what we're all charged and challenged to do. The great thing is, it also is very exciting in terms of the opportunities for people to move forward. Sure. I've got, I've got these two scenarios for you. I wanna, and I'm very interested to know and curious to know your opinion on them. And uh, if you remember in our pre-chat, I was talking about, I'm reading um, Principles by Ray Dalio. And he talks yeah. about in 2010, I think it was 20, 2007, where he said, I'm, I'm uh, taking a backseat and there'll be a 10-year transition period. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire, is it called hire, uh, hire, teach, hire, learn, test, and then fire. So he's had this four kind of uh, steps. And that'll kind of give him a good idea of, and give the person a good opportunity to kind of learn the company's ways and then show them you know, mm -hmm. their quality. So what's kind of your view on someone who's kind of growing their team and putting a structure in um, other than the, the technical skills that are needed to do the job? What, what would you kind of ask or put in place or uh, to make sure you're kind of hiring, your hiring practices are at a level where you're hiring the right kind of personalities and, 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 and qualities in a, in a person? How would you go about doing that? Sure. So one of the things around in, in the hiring process, certainly, and one of the, the best questions I had a mentor told me about this, one of the best questions is to ask somebody to walk me through an example of a challenge that they had, right? Uh, and the reason to ask that kind of a question is to see how self-aware they are. Because what you want to actually have them do is admit the honesty of, you know, what they did, what they did poorly, how they could have dealt it, done with it differently. Um, so that's something to consider. And just in terms of self-awareness, the key around helping, you know, thinking about, you know, how am I going to develop my team? I would start by considering do people have the connection, communication, and collaboration skills? Because, you know, at a certain point, technical skills, that's sort of a ticket to entry. You know, that's going to be expected that people are going to have those things. And also realizing that as I continue to think about the long term, you know, we need to have the basic technical skills, but a lot of the things that were technical skills five, 10 years ago 
have been automated, right? Um, AI, I'll be doing a lot of that stuff soon. So as I think about it, I actually want people on my team who have the human critical thinking skills to be able to integrate, to synthesize, to look at how do we all work together? How can they uh, create an environment where people are sharing good information with each other, good ideas, that they're not just working like, well, I have this good idea, but I don't want to share it, right? Are they sharing the ideas? And so those are some of the things that I'd be looking for. Now, on the flip side, I have to also then look in the mirror and say, what am I doing as the team leader to create processes and systems that support this kind of connection, communication, collaboration? I'll give you an example. I was working with uh, an organization and they wanted me to come in and work with their sales team and they wanted their sales team to become more collaborative. They said, you know, we have a lot of good individual contributors, but I think there's a lot that's being left on the table. And my first question on the phone with these guys was, so talk to me about your compensation system. So how are you comping, you know, in terms of your sales team? Long, very uncomfortable silence while I'm waiting for them to go, um, 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 clearly I touched a nerve. And then finally someone says, oh, our compensation system is they're incentivized to compete against each other. So what I got from that conversation was, you know, you're saying you want this different behavior, but what's the overall system on top of it? Um, There's a great quote um, that comes from Peter Drucker, who once said, you put a good person in a bad system, the bad system will win every time. So one of our goals as leaders, I think, is to understand is, you know, if we can be systems thinkers, and by the way, for those listeners that are really interested in systems thinking, probably the best book on the subject is by Peter Senge, S-E-N-G-E, called The Fifth Discipline which is a primer to systems thinking, which is basically understanding all the interdependencies between things. It's really a valuable skill for leaders to have. So what we're saying here is that understanding systems rather than, because every action that we take exists within a larger context. And if we just think of them in isolation, we're very limited. And so one of the big important things for leaders to know and to, to develop is their systems thinking ability. That's about integrating and synthesizing as opposed to, you know, a lot of people who go into the, into, into the business world are very good analysts, right? They have very good technical analysis skills in whatever their field of expertise is. And analysis is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking analysis. However, analysis is just one piece, which is it's all about taking an issue and then starting to break it down into smaller components to try to figure out root causes, figure out what works. And that's a great skill. However, we can't just analyze and break things down. Then we need to synthesize and reconfigure, put these things back together. And so I'd say in general, in most industries, the weighting is much more heavily towards analysis and problem solving than it is towards synthesis. And if we look at connection, communication, and collaboration, in some ways, those are all synthesis behaviors that are much more human. So, you know, not that, the, not that the other stuff goes away. It's just how do we incorporate that and integrate that into what we're doing as a whole. On, on the flip side, someone who's um, kind of now read your book and uh, wants to implement that in, in you know, in, their, in, in part of their kind of uh, workspace and their kind of leadership and they want to become in that kind of, that mode of a leader, mm-hmm. how would you say... Change, not everybody accepts change suddenly, but eventually kind of grow into it. How would you say they go about doing that? Sure. So in terms of behavior change, and this goes to the whole root of habit formation, is pick one thing. Don't pick 10, pick one thing. And also let your team know that you're working on this. So for example, if you knew that, let's say before you read the book, that you were a lousy listener and that you tended to pull out your phone and multitask 
and you wouldn't ask follow-up questions and you know, gosh, you know, I now suddenly realize that listening with purpose is probably the number one thing I could do is let people know that, hey, I'm really working on my listening. And I would say that is enough. Don't try to take on six other things. Just one simple thing. And don't even say, I'm going to be a great listener all the time. Get really specific. So for example, if I know that I have a meeting with you, a one-on-one meeting at 10 a.m. tomorrow, then I'm going to say, when I meet with Jasmine tomorrow, my focus, I'm going to put away everything. I'm going to just be completely uninterrupted and focus, capture notes. And then I might even ask for some feedback about how is that different. So it's really you know, and to use an analogy, you'll be familiar with this. I know that you go to the gym. It's like when you go to the gym, you don't do your full body workout all at once. What you do is you isolate, right? You pick one behavior, one workout exercise, and you, and you start to strengthen that muscle. So as you start to think about leadership, it, it can be broken down into this smaller series of component muscles. So there are, there's a whole series of connection muscles that you can exercise. There are communication muscles you can exercise. You can, you can exercise collaboration muscles. And so what I would say is whichever one resonates for you, because if I tell you which one you should do, then it's someone from the outside shooting on you, right? It's like, you should do this. You should like, no, just choose for yourself. Which one do you want to focus on and start small, you know, pick something that you can succeed at, notice how it goes and start to cultivate that and build it into a habit much in the same way that, you know, as an exercise habit, you don't have to spend a lot of time every day thinking about, should I go to the gym or not? Because it's second nature to you now. You want to do it. And so as we start to think about the practices of leadership, if I can start to realize, wow, I'm going to become a stronger and stronger leader over time, that's going to build my motivation because I'm going to see the progress that comes from the journey. Awesome. So focus on one thing. Um, that's pretty good advice. Um, We're now coming towards the end of the show. Um, what's the best way for people to connect with you, ask you questions or um, yeah, just follow what you do and um, your material and stuff. Sure. Probably the best place to go first is the book website, which is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. And that will connect you to my homepage. But uh, crackingtheleadershipcode.com is the easiest place. You can learn all about the book. You can actually read chapter one from that page as well. And people can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. My name again is Alain, which is the French name, A-L-A-I-N. My last name is Hunkins, H-U-N-K-I-N-S. And you can also find me at alainhunkins.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Jasper. It's been a super pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you got some great value and insights from this episode. And if you're someone who wants to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur, then I have some great free resources for you. If you visit www.jazzbearaurora.com, that's www.jazzbearaurora.com and drop me a line, I will send you an ebook and also a one-hour masterclass. And also um, go and take the Escape the 95 survey, uh, which will help you understand where you are right now um, and where the gaps are in your knowledge to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur. And if you're a business, and you need help growing or if you have any uh, issues that you'd like to discuss, then yeah, once again, visit the website and I'll be more than happy to help you. Thank you for listening.